Welcome to part something, something, something of uh, Let's Take Our Job Back. And if you're just joining us for the first time, yeah, we've been in this series for a while. And if you've missed any of them, I encourage you to go back. But in this series, we've been, we've been uh, just being very honest with the fact that COVID has revealed uh, a lot of, it's revealed the church's strengths in some ways, and it also revealed many of our weaknesses, unfortunately. I think we missed, to be quite honest, I think as a church globally, we missed a massive opportunity uh, to step forward and to be the hope and to be the light that we're called to be. And I think in, in uh, COVID, it's a great revealer, a great accelerator. I think one of the things that kind of caused me to be very curious and, and to ask questions is, is the church, is Christianity the way that I understand it, was raised in it, is the way Christianity that we've been taught and it's been modeled for us, is it what Jesus intended? When Jesus said, I will build my church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it, is this the church that he had envisioned? Is this the, what he had instructed us to be as Christians to be? And the, to be quickly honor, answer that question is, I think we're a long ways away from what Jesus' original intent is. I think we've reduced, I have, and grow up in tradition. I'm not going to speak for you or anybody else. But I think I reduced my faith to a, a weekly social gathering and a personal relationship. And I am thankful that I get to have a personal relationship with God. But I want you to understand something. Christianity was never meant to be personal only. And it was never meant to be a weekly social gathering. And when COVID kind of came along and we got threatened to, and the church got threatened to remove the weekly social gathering and all the rest of it. And when I saw the church stand up in, in many ways, myself included, and fight for our right to meet on shoulder to shoulder, in person, in gathering in large groups, I was like, is this what we're called? Is this what it is? And is that wise? And, and all the battles that went back and forth and all this. And I was like, we some, somehow missed it. And so in the process of all the craziness of COVID, I think many of you have been self-reflective. I've been self-reflective. And as a pastor, I'm like, what am I doing? And what am I teaching? And am I teaching traditions of men? Or am I teaching what Jesus really wanted? And so I began to do a big study into the early church and into the scriptures and trying to discover what are we here for and what's this all about? And, and realizing that the church is so much more than a weekly social gathering and a personal faith. That we're called to redeem cities and restore homes. That, that the church is not just meant to be kept per personal inside the walls of a, of a building or in your private prayer closet. It's meant to transform communities. And that it's, it's meant to change the world. That we're supposed to be the light of the world. And while we complain that the world is getting darker, if we're called to be the light of the world... That means that it's our fault it's getting darker. Amen. And so let's take our job back. Let's figure out what we're called to be. And we've been studying the book of Nehemiah. And we're, uh, I don't know, 12 weeks in or something like that uh, now. I've never preached a series this long in my life, but I just keep on seeing more. We're, like at, we're starting chapter 4 today. 12 weeks later, like, I just keep getting stuck on, on stuff. And it's amazing, every single week, like, I'm finding more and more scriptures all over the Bible that point towards this. And I was like, and this is, honestly, I feel convicted, hugely convicted personally, because I'm like, how did I miss this? It's so plain. Anybody else ever feel like that? You read in the Bible, like, how did I? 
But a lot of it's been what we've been, a lot of it's been what we've been taught. And how our focus has been. And I, I'm, COVID just caused me to relook and rethink and, and to shut off some outside voices and just go, God, what, what did they do? And what did you want? And let's find out. And this is not being critical of uh, any other church. It's being critical of the Big C Church, of which we're a part, so we can do that. We're called to judge that. But we're not being critical. We're, we're saying this, this is us. We're, we're looking at stuff for us. This is for us. We're not asking anybody else to do anything. We're just saying for us. Let's find it. So let's go uh, Nehemiah chapter 4. Pick up where we left off last week. Verse 1 says, Now it came about when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. Now Sanballat, we've been introduced to you a couple weeks ago. Sanballat and Tobiah, we're going to see him in a moment. Sanballat and Tobiah were not friends of Nehemiah. They were not excited about the rebuilding of the wall. And here's something that is, I don't know, it has to be stated. We all know it's true, but not everyone is going to be a fan of us taking our job back. Okay, not everyone is going to be excited about when you get the vision of God. Not everyone's going to get it. Not everyone's going to be excited. Number one, the devil doesn't mind you attending church, and he is not going to be excited if you take your job back and become the light. He's okay if we keep the light in the building. But when we start being the light in the community, he's not going to be too thrilled. Number two, the religious, and that can be all of us, any of us, the religious aren't excited about taking their job back because it's comfortable. Like they, religious, in religion can tend to be in all of us, but religion likes to be on top. And we learned last week that our mission is submission, which means we have to be on the bottom. And so when, when religion wants to fight to maintain power, control, command, all the rest of it on top, and the religious part of all of us wants to fight to win and to be on top and always, you know, lord it over and tell them and... And so they don't like when we're like, no, let's come underneath and serve. So there's going to be opposition. Nehemiah got opposition. Now he spoke, uh, Sanballat spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of uh, Samaria and said, what are these uh, feeble Jews, he's insulting them now, doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves whenever we get criticized? You're going to get criticized for your motives. You're going to get judged for your motives. You know, you're just doing this for you. You're just doing this to make it look good. You think you're better than us, whatever it might be. Your motives are going to be, that's how people attack one another, is go after the motives. Sanballat was doing the same thing. Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish it in a day? No. They're not going to finish rebuilding a city in a day. But the reason why he's asking this, he already knows the answer. The reason why he's asking this is because he wants to discourage, demotivate, demoralize, and, and cause them to see how big of a job it is in front of them. Do you think you're just going to change this overnight? No. Because it, what the purpose of that statement is to, to go, this is really big, and I, I, are we going to be able to do this? He's trying to demoralize them. Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones now? Now Tobiah, the Ammonite, uh, was near him, and he said, even what they are building, if a fox would jump on it, it would break the stone wall down. Yes, because they just started. Probably was true. 
but that's not the finished product. And then, you know, what are you building? You don't, what do you, how do you know how to build? I mean, he could have, they probably looked at it and they're like, you got a perfumer building that wall. Like that, how's that going to stand? They got a goldsmith. What does he know about bricklaying? Like, it, you know, it's not going to work. So I love Nehemiah's prayer. And, and I love his prayer because I wish I could pray this way. I've asked God, can I pray this way? Just look at how Nehemiah prayed. You're going to think the same thing. He says, hear, O God, how we are despised. Return their approach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in the land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity. Let their sin, uh, let not their sin be blotted out before you, for they have demoralized the building. Don't you wish you could pray like that sometimes? I read David's prayers and I was like, man, can I pray like that? God, is that Okay. Yeah, you hear what they said, just return it on them tenfold. They, anyway, but now watch, verse 6, look at this. So we built the wall. Man, I love this. Nehemiah and, and the people get criticized, demoralized, attacked. And we see, just, we just saw Nehemiah's praying, for they have demoralized the builders. It worked. They were demoralized. They were tired. They were discouraged, whatever it might be. And then verse 6, just right after he admits, they're demoralized right after, so we built. I love that. Because listen, 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 listen. Sometimes we put too much emphasis on our feelings. Sometimes as Christians... We think, listen to me carefully, I, I, I'm gonna, we're going to kill some sacred cows. <laughs> In the words of my friend, Pastor Leon, anyway, let's kill some sacred cows. Listen, this is <laughs> one of the sacred cows, especially in the charismatic faith things, is we think that doubt and fear is the opposite of faith. It is not. You can have doubt and fear and still have faith. That it is, sometimes we get so spiritually minded that we think if fear comes in or if we have doubts about an answer to prayer, we think that we don't have faith. Listen, they feared, they, they doubted, they were demoralized, they were discouraged, yet that did, that did not stop them from building. They still chose, that's what courage is, courage is not the absence of fear, it's, it's moving despite of the fear. Faith is not the absence, uh, is not the absence of, of you know, any doubt. Faith is, faith is moving despite the doubt. It's believing despite. It's, not, it's choosing not to give in to my feelings, and it's choosing to obey and move ahead anyway. Amen? So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had the mind to work. They, they, they were discouraged in their minds, but they, they were focused on the purpose larger than their feelings. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah, uh, the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashadites and Probably, I don't know, probably Hutterites and Mennonites and all the otherites. I don't know. Um, mosquito bites. All. <laughs> Heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and the breaches became, you know, began to be closed. They were so thrilled for us. No, they were angry. They were very angry. Not everyone's going to be happy when we take our job back. Verse 8, all of them conspired to, together to come and to fight against Jerusalem to cause a disturbance in it. But we prayed, look at this, verse 9, but we prayed, we have opposition coming in, we prayed, 
Absolutely. We called a prayer meeting. Good. But then look at this. And because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. We prayed and, and is a big, big word, and we set up a guard. We prayed, we had faith that God was going to move, but at the same time, we had wisdom to set up a guard. Sometimes, listen to me carefully, listen to me carefully. We need to pray and have wisdom, right? We need to have faith and wisdom. Those are the power twins. We still have responsibility in the matters we are praying about. We prayed and we set up a guard. Then verse 10, thus in Judah it was said, the strength of the burden bearers is falling. It's failing, yet there is much rubbish and we ourselves are, are unable to rebuild the wall. You can hear the discouragement that's being said about them. They're, they're getting weary, they're getting tired, they're getting weak, they're unable to finish this. Our enemies said they will not know or see until we come among them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. And then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times, they will come up against us from every place where you may turn. So then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space between the, behind the wall and exposed places, and I stationed the people and families with their swords and their spears and their bows. And then look at this in verse 14. When I saw their fear, so this, this, is, this is key. Nehemiah, as the leader, notices that the people are afraid. He sees this. And as a good leader, when I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. This is why, this is why we gather still on Sundays. This is why it's important to gather together like this because we can, each of us can go throughout the week. We can face what happens in the week. We can get discouraged. We can get, you know, you know, demoralized, we can get doubtful, we can get fearful. When we come together and, and start singing, we serve the same God who, who healed then, he can heal now. We serve the same God who did that then and did that now. All of a sudden you can feel the faith build up inside of you and you can remember the Lord your God. This is what Nehemiah is doing. He's basically preaching. Remember the Lord your God. You're going to get discouraged. You're going to get fearful, but remember the Lord your God. Sometimes you have to come back and refocus. Remember the Lord your God. And then he says, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your houses. I love this because Nehemiah says, remember the Lord your God. And then he gets them to focus up and he gets them to focus out. That they weren't just building for themselves. They weren't just building for their own generation. They were building for their children and their children's children. What the work that they were doing wasn't just for one generation. It was for generation after generation. And listen, we need to take our job back, church, because the church I want my kids to grow up in, the church I want my grandkids to grow up in, looks much different than the church we are today. And we have to take our job back. We have to fight. It's not just for us. It's for our kids. What, ki what kind of church, what kind of Christianity do you want your kids to experience, do your grandkids to experience? We have to change, don't we? Do we want them to have the same old, same old? We're fighting for more than just us. Verse 15, when our enemies heard that it was known to us, their schemes, and that God had frustrated their plan, then all of us returned to the wall, each one to his work, each one to his work. We learned this last week. Each one, we all have a role to play. We all have a job to play. Each one 
to his work. And from that day on, half of my servants carried on the work while half of them held the spears and shields and bows and breastplates. And the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. Then verse 17, those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand doing the work and with the other building, holding a weapon. They had, they had a trowel in one hand building the wall and they had a sword in the other. And listen, this is, we're going to pause right here. This is what the modern church should look like. A sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. This is what the modern Christian should look like. A sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. I'm going to invite Tim to come and be my Vanna. I want you to see something. I want you to, we just visually want to see that. A sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. Here's what, here's what this, is, this is why this is so important. This is so important to visually see this and understand this. We all like human nature. We all like the sword. Like we just look at it and are like inspired. Like we like the sword. And the church has focused for so long and for too long, in my opinion, on the sword. We like the sword. Nobody makes movies about the trowel. Right? That's not attractive. That's not like, inspiring. But listen, the church in the church, we know that the sword represents, and the Bible talks about the sword, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And it says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God. Right? We, we're inspired by these spiritual warfare. And we focus, on, we focus on prayer as a weapon. We focus on the Word as a weapon. We focus on revival. And for too long, we've been, we've been reliant on the sword and just saying we got to get better at the sword in order to take, in order to take you know, our country back, in order for us to have revival, we got to pray more, we got to repent more, we got to get better at wielding the sword. And so we focus on the spiritual gifts and we focus on more word, more prayer, and we call prayer meetings. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying lay down the sword. I'm not saying that. I'm saying we got to pick up the trowel. Okay, I'm saying that for too long... I'm saying for too long, the church has ignored and laid down the trowel and focused on the sword. Amen. That we stopped building. We stopped the works. And we, we started getting motivated by the spiritual. And we started training all the training that we've gotten, all the preaching that we've gotten, everything we've gotten has all been focused on the sword. And we've forgotten the trowel. Thank you, Tim. You can lay those down. Are we getting this? Now, as you know, throughout COVID, I did some deep study into the history of the church. And here's one of the things that I discovered in, in my study, stuff that I never got taught in Bible college, things that I've never experienced before. I just went looking and studying history and, and, and learning. And I was shocked to find out and to discover that the church's greatest growth period happened in the third century. Shocked. I'd never heard this before. No one's ever told me before. But I'll, I'll, I'll explain what I discovered. The church at the beginning of the third century. So in the year 200, there was estimated 218,000 Christians on the entire planet. 218,000. By the year 300, at the end of the, the third century, there was over 6 million Christians on the planet. 
which that's remarkable growth. But what's even more remarkable is that they, you know, scholars estimate and, and project that, that the church grew by 43.8% growth every decade. 43.8% growth. Now, if just imagine the church today growing just under 2 billion people of Christians. That are, just imagine the church today growing by 43.8% every decade. That's called revival. That's a massive revival. So I call it the third century revival because this is, this is the fastest period of growth. So I went looking in the third century. I went looking for the things that caused the growth to happen. I went looking for what we would typically look for. Okay, where did the revival happen? Where was the moving of the spirit? Who was the great evangelist that God used? Who was the great bishop? Where was the great leaders that rose up and, and, and led the church? Where were they? And I was shocked to find I can only find, and I can only to this day, and I've studied, I look, I can only name one bishop in the entire third century for the church. Only one leader of the third century church, I can only name one of them. And the reason why I can name him is because a plague was named after him. His name was Bishop Cyprian. And they named the plague after him because he was the only historian in the third century to record in detail, the plague. And this plague started in 249 AD. And, and in year 249, it lasted for almost 20 years. And in the, in the 20 years that it, it existed, it killed, is responsible for killing, a fifth of the Roman Empire. A fifth. They estimate, I think, Rome alone had 400,000 people die. Like crazy, terrible, horrific plague. And it was named after Cyprian, bishop, because he recorded all these details. What's remarkable in all of that is that this is what's recorded. The church grew. And I was like, there's no revival. There's no, what happened? What went on? Well, it was recorded by historians that the, the plague was so terrifying and horrific. And they're, you know, they're still trying to figure out what it was. Modern doctors and scientists trying to figure out what it was. They say it's probably something like an Ebola. But, it, but it's killed people quickly and horrifically. And it caused such fear in the empire that it was said, in historians recorded, that, that it was said that Romans actually disposed their family, anyone that got a sniffle or, or showed any symptoms at all, that they would discard their families and throw them out into the streets and, and, and friends and families and would be abandoned and the Romans would run from it. And yet, it was reported that the Christians were the ones who ran in and started caring for the sick and the dying. And when they died, they would bury them to the degree that many of the Christians died as a result. What also is interesting about the third century is the third century, especially in regards to the church, is that the third century records the three greatest periods of persecution in the history of the church. It was nothing had been seen like this before and nothing since. That in, starting in the year 250, one year after the plague started, the emperors blamed the Christians for the plague. And because the church started growing so exponentially and people were converting, the emperors thought that this was the gods punishing the Romans by sending this plague for, for the ever-growing atheism, which is Christianity, to the gods. And so they started killing and rounding up and killing Christians. And so the three successive, from 250 to 303 um, AD, there's three successive 
persecutions, the Diocletian persecution which at the end of the third century was the most horrific and caused the most death. So here's what's amazing, is that Christians died because of the plague exponentially, and they were dying faster and more because they were rushing to and helping, and they were being persecuted and rounded up. And you know how they got found out? Is they were getting found out by the people they were trying to help because they would rush in to help and care and, and they were going, well, you must be a Christian. They would turn them in and be persecuted. And yet in the period of all of this, the church grew the most and inspired some of the fourth century bishops. And in the fourth century, look at the beginning of the fourth century, 313, Constantine gets saved. And, and Christianity becomes legalized. And then later in the 4th century, Dionysius, Bishop of Alexandria, wrote this. Look, look at this. This is what he said. Most of, he's writing this about the 3rd century church. Most of our brethren, through their surpassing love and brotherly kindness, being unsparing of themselves and clinging to one another, fearlessly visiting the sick and continually ministering to them, serving them in Christ, most cheerfully departed this life with them, becoming infected with the affliction of others and drawing the sickness from their neighbors upon themselves and willingly taking over their pains. I read this and I, become, I became extremely convicted because this is a different Christian than I am. I'm like, wow, and what's amazing is this is what they estimate. The reason why the church grew exponentially is because the Christians, when they saw the sick, they didn't just wield the sword, say, we'll pray for you. They picked up the trowel and they ran in and they cared and they helped and they healed and ministered to the sick and buried the dead and did all of that. And because of that, they were such a light that the Romans, who were feeling hopelessless and afraid, were so inspired by the fearlessness and the hope, the unwavering hope in Christians, that they joined them by the masses. And it transformed the empire to where Christianity was legalized in 313 and became the state religion the end of the 4th century. It transformed a nation. Now, Dr. Miles Monroe said this about kingdom people, that we're different. The kingdom of which we are a part of is so powerful that we need not fear any potential opposition. Kingdom men... And women say, bring on the problems. That's right. And we advance right through them. Our kingdom does not run. It does not retreat. Our king stands firm, advances, and overcomes. Amen? Now watch. Come on. I'm right here with the rest of us. What I saw in COVID wasn't that. What I saw in COVID was either running away from or we picked up the sword instead of the trowel. And we missed an opportunity, don't you think? We missed a huge opportunity. 
Bishop Basil is another fourth century bishop, and, and, and he's called Saint Basil now, and he's in, in 368 and 369, there was a, a widespread famine drought that it really attacked his area around Caesarea. And it was devastating. And people were dying and, and were hungry and starving to death. And so what he did is he picked up the trowel and he actually began to feed the hungry and care for the sick and the dying. And to such a degree that they began to flood towards Caesarea, overwhelm the city, the people in the region overwhelmed the city that they had to actually build another city outside of Caesarea for Bishop Basil. And they called it Basilica, named it after him. And, they, and, and in that, in Basilica, he cared for the sick, the dying, and the hungry, all the rest of it, because he just, he built, he built a city. And out of that came the first hospital. As to what we have today, the modern hospital was designed by the church picking up the trowel. So don't tell me that healthcare and the church collide. Got really quiet in here, Pastor Ralph. <laughs> well, look at what Bishop Basil wrote. This was his motivation. And again, as I read this, I'm going, that's not the Christianity that I have modeled or am. It's what I want to be. But look at this. He said this. The bread you store belongs to the hungry. The clothes you accumulate belongs to the naked. The shoes that you have in your closet are for the barefoot. Now he's getting personal. Pastor Cindy. He's getting personal. I like my shoes. The money you bury deep into the ground to keep it safe belongs to the poor. You were unfair to as many people as you could have helped, and you did not. Ah. Wow. James, the brother of Jesus, said, this is, not, this is not new. This is not just one man. James, the brother of Jesus, said this in James 2. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? <laughs> Can such faith save them? Yes. I prayed a prayer. I went to church every day. I prayed. I prophesied. I spoke in tongues. To which Paul says, if you prophesy, it's good. You speak in tongues, it's good. But if you have no love, it's a, it's a loud, noisy. God, this is all throughout the scriptures, they've been saying this. Suppose a brother's sisters without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In other words, if one of you says, if I'll pray for you, we pick up the wrong weapon sometimes, but does nothing, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. And he goes on, he says, but if someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds, show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. 
You believe there is one God? Yes. We believe right. We preach right. We have more faith than that. You know, we do this and we do that. Come on, church. We believe right. I believe there's one God. He's like, good. He's not saying lay down the sword. Good. Even the devil believes that. And shudders. Says, you foolish person. Now, I, I got to admit, I've been the fool. Says, do you want evidence? Your faith without deeds is useless? What a question. And I got to be honest, looking around the church today, especially young people in the next generation, the church that we're building for the next, young people won't put up with a belief system without action. They'll call it out. And they should. If you want evidence of a faith without deeds is useless, I think we've been useless. I'm not saying lay down this. I'm just saying it's time to pick up this. Amen. Here's today's takeaway. When we take, when we reduce Christianity to a belief system, it becomes weak and meaningless. Faith without works is dead. God help, help us to move past our traditions and what we've always known and done as Christians and help us to see again with fresh eyes the way you see. Help us to look at our communities different with your eyes, to hear with your ears. And God give us the wisdom to know what to do we see and hear and give us the courage to do it. Forgive us, Lord, for reducing our faith to something private and a weekly social gathering. Help us to pick up the trowel, God, so that we can go to work and be the light that you called us to be. In Jesus' name. Paul says in Romans 10, here, that if you confess today, with your you know, mouth yeah. that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he rose again from the dead, you will be saved. So I want to run through a prayer with you right now that does exactly that. And it's not joining a church. It's not joining religion. It's simply just a relationship with God. So uh, if you'd like, I'd encourage you to close your eyes, bow your head, repeat this prayer after me. So dear Jesus, I confess that you are God and I believe that you rose again from the dead. And I ask you now to become my Lord, to become my Savior, to become my friend. I thank you that my past is past and that I can begin anew with you today. My heart is yours 
in Jesus name amen amen so guys if you prayed that prayer for the first time there's a link in the comment section that you can click on fill out that link we'd love to just get to know you get to uh just help you along in this brand new journey that you are on and congratulations on this amazing amazing decision